This episode of Talk of the Devils is sponsored once more by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit 1 million orders phase. Yep, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling ETH style turtleneck sweaters or blueprints for brand new stadiums, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to Talk of the Devils, you can sign up for our $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash reddevils, all in lowercase without any spaces. So go to shopify.com slash reddevils to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash reddevils. The Athletic. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United and we're back for another hit to debrief, unfortunately, on defeat at the Emirates Stadium. But don't worry, we've got a semi to cheer us up, haven't we, this week? We'll preview the first leg of the League Cup last four against Nottingham Forest. There's some transfer bits and pieces going around and also exclusive news of changes to the Stretford end at Old Trafford as well, which we'll get to before the end of this podcast. We've got Andy Mitten and Laurie Whitwell with us. Good morning, good afternoon. Good evening, gentlemen, depending on when people are listening to this, of course. Andy, is the bubble well and truly pot with that defeat? It was a bit deflating, wasn't it, again? It was deflating, but I, I don't think it's popped with a, a bang. Arsenal are a very good team. They've got 50 points after 19 matches. They showed that at Old Trafford. On balance over the two games, two wins is better than two draws, two points. Manchester United got three points from Arsenal. It feels horrible, though, doesn't it, to lose in London... In the last couple of minutes, for the second time in four days, and United had had such a good run coming up to that, but I'm still quite optimistic about Manchester United under Eric Tenag. I think that um, United are in a decent position in the league. Six points clear a fifth. Would we have accepted that a month or two ago? 100%. Absolutely. I think you've got to take into consideration the huge number of Manchester United games that there are. Eight games in the last 27 days. Uh, there's going to be 10 in the next 32, the 18 matches in 59 days. And the squad isn't complete. Eric Ten Hag has made that point several times. He's only just been in the job. Mikel Arteta has had more time there. There's been times when Arsenal fans were really on his case. He's done a very good job. I just hope that the sort of spirit that Manchester United showed coming back when Martinez got that goal, it was a brilliant goal from Rashford at the start. Love the celebrations in front of the away end. And yeah, it does sting to to lose a match. But I look at the fixtures Manchester United have got coming up and I think that the team should be able to get back on track and you know strengthen the, the position in the top four and hopefully win a cup. Defeat, Laurie, but it was a great game, wasn't it? It was a great watch until those last few moments. Yeah, actually sort of being in the stadium as well, I wasn't sure if the whole narrative around the title that we obviously were helping build up um, and how <laughs> that fed into this game being a, a proper contest, you know, a kind of throwback game. 
uh, was was overhyped or not. But actually, being there, the Arsenal fans were properly on the edge of their emotions. Um, you could see the United section over in the far corner, delirious when Marcus Rashford struck the first goal. Um, and so it did have that kind of edgy atmosphere, that, that kind of tension in the air that um, I think we were hoping for. And yeah, the game lived up to it, didn't it? I mean, it was end-to-end for much of the first half. I, I, th- I always felt that Arsenal were with a sort of more superior, more kind of in control of it. Yeah. But I think United were dangerous, weren't they, uh, when they did get the ball? I mean, particularly through Marcus Rashford, which is, is a concern, and we might touch on it coming later in the podcast, about the emphasis on Rashford to produce right now, because uh, it is too skewed. Um, but I do think that United gave a good account of themselves. And, and as Andy says, I think Arsenal are just further along in their road, aren't they, under Mikel Arteta? That being said, Eric Ten Hag was was pretty pissed off, it sounded like, after the game. Um, I mean, he was he was talking about individual mistakes and, and mentality being his crucial um, sort of takeaway in that players had to be more switched on, you know, until the final whistle, which is an interesting... Uh, reading of it um, because I think a lot of people were probably looking at a game thinking United certainly for the last 20 minutes were dropping deeper were looking tired could the manager have done something from the bench um, he explained why he didn't do that with um, Rashford playing well Bruno Fernandes had already tweaked his position about Vegost as well he felt did a good job uh, you know the six foot six inch height just at set pieces and Arsenal putting quite a lot of crosses in so he explained why he didn't make any changes and you do have to look at that bench and think well okay Alejandro Garnacho is probably the only one and he's an 18-year-old kid still. Like It's not like he's somebody that you're sending on with absolute expectation. It's more in hope, really, that he does something on the break, perhaps. So I think his, his hands are tied in, in what he can do in those kind of games. And, and it does expose, doesn't it, the fact that you've got a guy that you've signed on loan from Burnley playing the whole game in a game of such consequence and, and magnitude. Um, but it was interesting, his reading of what went wrong in those final stages, because it would have been just a real boost, I think, to come away from the Emirates with a, a score draw where they've battled hard and, and, and done well and got a point. But in the end, it, it felt like it was Arsenal's occasion and, and they won, you know, kind of, I think, justifiably in the end. Yeah, that was the first time this season, Andy, that Manchester United have taken the lead in the Premier League and lost. And in fact, Crystal Palace the other night was the first time that they'd taken the lead in a Premier League game this season and not won. In terms of United's development, Laurie's written about it on The Athletic. Arsenal are a bit of an example, really. I, I sort of loathe to say it in a way. Sound like David Moyes, don't I? Yeah. We're, but, we're aspiring towards yeah. the team that are leading the league right now. But, but in terms of being patient, there's parallels of getting rid of you know senior players, high-profile players. There's parallels of of building with a with a, a true identity and sticking to those principles and there there are parallels there aren't there and you know the the turnaround in arsenal from this point of last season to now is startling i mean if united have that turnaround we'll be about 30 points clear at this point next season he's done a really good job i respect arsenal they're one of the great clubs of english football in the 1930s my uncle charlie dreamed of playing for arsenal he ended up at manchester united Arsenal were the team who any young footballer absolutely loved the idea of playing for. They were a grand club. I would rather Arsenal win the title than Manchester City. I'm being honest there. Uh, I think United will struggle to win the title now. 11 points behind Arsenal. 
they've played one game less. Can I ask you on that one, Andy? Because I, I, I had a debate with uh, Miguel Delaney, actually, um, and, and Amy Lawrence, uh, who covers Arsenal for us, about who you'd prefer to win. And I actually said City mm. because it's like, well, you can just throw that away and say, well, City have, have done it before and, and you know, there's obviously a reason why they're, they're so powerful now. But then Miguel pointed out, well, that would be three in a row for City and they haven't done that before. So yeah, I'm probably, you know. Yeah. Bit... Arsenal. Are we Arsenal. choosing men to sleep with our wives again, are we? Is that, is that how it's going? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't remember who said it's that. It's Gary them. Neville who said it. It's, uh, yeah. it's a great quote. Yeah, it's one of them. You know, in uh, in 2004, I, I I went to a bank and got talking to this lady in Spain, and she said, "Oh, my my cousin plays football. He plays in England. He's he's called uh, Mikel. He's at um he's at he's at Rangers, right?" <laughs> so she set me up with, with Mikel Arteta, and I, I interviewed him, and he was a nice lad. Um, I've not spoke to him since 2004, but his numbers not changed, so I can still see when he's on WhatsApp. <laughs> Can't you send him in some that abuse? time? Gone to about five different, six different clubs. Uh, he'd been at Barcelona B, but yeah, he was at Rangers. She said, oh, he's, a, he's in Scotland playing for a team up there. And he was pretty well known because I think he cost about £6 million for Rangers. So as a journalist, I reckon that is the longest I've gone with speaking to a contact. I say he's a contact. He probably ain't got a clue who I am, but I, I definitely interviewed him a while back. He's doing a brilliant job in it. And their record... Uh, so far this season, uh, it, it's testament to that, and they've had some pretty rough times, Arsenal, over the last couple of years. So I wouldn't say um, I'm glad for them because I'm not, because I'm still a bit annoyed at the result of that match, and I did hope that Manchester United could get something from it. But in truth, I don't think it was a game Manchester United ever looked like winning. It's worth reflecting on that because only four teams in Premier League history have done that previously, got got to 50 points at 19. So Arsenal are doing something that's that's pretty rare. And when you look at that team, it's not like it's a team of bona fide winners that they've kind of that you expect to be in this position. They've obviously he's coached them really well. They've obviously got appetite and energy, technique. They understand their roles, and I think that's what the the piece that I've written is kind of reflecting. And to be fair, it was I was speaking to Alex Kajelska, our editor, and it was sort of partly his his idea as well because I was sort of saying, yeah, but the bench wasn't great for Ten Hag, and he was saying, yeah, but look at what Arsenal, look at what Arteta has done with these players that previously were written off. I mean, Eddie Nketiah scored two against United to go, you know, as Arsenal's leading scorer, and it was only in December that that Paul Merson was saying, you know, what team does he actually get in in the Premier League? And that, that's not to um, denigrate Paul Merson. I think he's a really interesting. Um, person and gives his opinions fully and, and I, I enjoy hearing what he has to say and it wasn't he wasn't alone in that opinion but it's just to say perception can change kind of quite quickly but obviously it does take the right characters and, and the right manager it's getting players to make that leap isn't it I think you referenced in the piece about Luke Shaw and Marcus Rashford because they are playing on a much higher level Andy than they were even at the start of this season so that's two players if you can get five six seven eight nine 10 players to make the same sort of leap. And we are seeing signs that others are beginning to improve as well. That's how you're going to elevate United. And I think Laurie wrote as well that it's not always about transfers. It's not always about new players. Yes, they're needed. Yes, they'll help. But you've got a core of players there who are playing or have been playing below the potential. And if you can get them up to where they should be and higher than that even, that's when you're cooking. I think Eric Tenark has raised standards. I think Laurie made the, the point in his piece that those standards have got to be even higher if you're going to be winning leagues and if you're going to be going to the best teams and getting results there. Yes, Manchester United have taken points off all the bigger clubs this year. 
I think there's a little bit of an over-reliance on a core of five or six players for Manchester United. I think there are others who are either A, short of the standard to be playing in a title winning side or B, need to benefit from Ten Hag and his coaches like some of the players that you've mentioned there because... I think United did miss Casemiro. I don't think Scott McTominay did, did too badly, but do you think they did miss Casemiro him is a better player. Yeah, I do. I think he gives defensive cover. I think he's intelligent. I think what he does off the ball. I uh, I think he's been Manchester United's best player this season for a reason. And when your best player is not playing, you know, Manchester United would have missed Brian Robson if he wasn't playing in the nineteen eighties. What do you think the improvement? would have been that he would have brought? Would it have been a bit more defensive stability in terms of, you know, I know Ten Hag was disappointed with the goals that were conceded or was it the bringing more of an element of control, Laurie? Well, I, th- I think they actually lost the ball quite cheaply towards the end in certain moments. I mean, even Christian Eriksen, who's brilliant on the ball, you know, he might have said, well, you should have shouted there was a player that, that kind of took it off him from over his shoulder. But even Bruno in the first half, like, you know, he got dispossessed by Martin, Martin Odegaard really quickly and there's there moments where I think United needed to be sharper and I think Casemiro would have done that on the ball. He has given it away in, in match but then he's usually atoned very quickly and then just sort of set a pass away. There was actually like a moment in the second half where Luke Shaw played up to Vegos who, who flicked it to Bruno Fernandes and he paid a pass through the middle to Rashford and in the end, it, I didn't see a replay, but it was like Ramsdale and Rashford collided and I think Rashford wanted a free kick or something. And, and Tenag actually referenced that in his post-match press conference because he said he'd changed Fernandes' position a little bit. And that's the kind of position where I think Casemiro delivers those balls really well. You know, we've seen it away at Man City for that through ball that was definitely to Bruno Fernandes. We've seen it at Everton for Cristiano Ronaldo. So I wonder if, as well as being kind of defensively minded and screening and kind of knowing where to move. And I mean, you look at the, the Saka shot that he had from distance, you know, could McTominay have pushed out a bit more or Ericsson got really close to him? Like, would Casemiro have been able to sense that that was a dangerous moment and, and block it? Even his influence on them in Possibly, those moments yeah. as well. Possibly. It's hypothetical, isn't it? Because, I mean, ultimately he did. The reason why he's not in the game is because he, he had to bring down... Uh, Wilfred Zaha against Crystal Palace and he's obviously done that to a number of times where he's he's picked up so, too many bookings to, to stay you know uh, f- away from suspension so you know I'm not saying that he is the the the, the panacea for all this but uh, I do think that he would have as you say raised himself done, done the aspects that would have benefited Man United and also his teammates around him Were you surprised no Fred Andy? I was a little bit when I saw the, the starting lineup because uh, I think he can do a very good job when he's given a specific task. Um, Arsenal's midfield really impressed me. Uh, Odegaard is a is a fantastic player, and that McTominay came in. What was it? That was his first start since since he lost his place to Casemiro. So you're going back then to the start of October, uh, and I know that McTominay. Uh, I think he made his debut at Arsenal many years ago. But it was a big, big ask, and I don't think he disgraced himself by any stretch. But once again, he isn't Casemiro, and I think the players around him. I don't think Christian Eriksen had his best game for Manchester United. I know it was his in-swinging corner that led to Martinez's equaliser, uh, but he let Saka get that shot off. He lost the ball actually before that had even uh, happened, and I don't think he's had the influence. And you're going to get that, and. When Manchester United are up against top, top teams, these players will be judged. And Roy Keane, after the match, he picked out four Manchester United players where the implication was, OK, you're beating Nottingham Forest, you're beating Bournemouth, you're beating Everton. 
But if you're going to be the best, you've got to go to places like Arsenal, like the great sides did, and get a result. But once again, we're still very early in Eric Ten Hag's reign. He would ideally want to bring in two or three players. And we should see, other things being equal, a further improvement with Manchester United. I've seen some pretty wretched Arsenal performances at Arsenal in, in recent years. There was that game on, I think it was the 1st or 2nd of January, two or three years ago, maybe that was just before, before COVID, and it was awful. It was a weird game last April, wasn't it? Where, I think it was 3-2, but United played well in little patches. So there's clear room for improvement for, for Manchester United, and I think the general trend under Eric Ten Hag is an improving team. But when I looked at the bench yesterday... I, I wasn't uh, convinced that there was a huge amount of talent on there. And we can all look retrospectively t- and, and critique the game management and whether X players should have been brought on earlier or, or later. And I think that, that that's fair to say that because, once again, Manchester United conceded that late goal. Anything to add, Laurie? Uh, just a couple of points of just from being in the stadium and kind of noticing little weird bits. Eric Tenag early on was noticing... I couldn't figure it out, so I asked him after the game. But basically, when United were trying to pass it out from the back with a goal kick, they were kind of doing a funky way of Martinez passing it back to De Gea. And he was really on top of Shaw and Martinez. He, he like, and after Rashford scored, the thing he did was grab Shaw across and kind of have a long conversation with him. And basically, Arsenal were pressing in a different way than they expected. And he was trying to tell them to do it differently. But then, obviously, they still passed the ball out, ultimately, to Wan-Bissaka. And then he loses the ball. And, and that's where Arsenal equalised from. So it's, it is sort of fine margins. that, I, But I did admire how... A sharp he was to it. We, we know this already, you know, and it's great. You've got a manager there that's that's taking initiative in those split second moments. That's what he's paid the big money for, really, to kind of affect the game when it matters. So, but I thought that was uh, quite telling, and I did enjoy Martinez's performance as well. I think that's sort of worth just reflecting on because he's, you know, he lost his place almost by winning the World Cup with Argentina to, to Luke Shaw, and he, he came back in against a team that's tried to sign him in the summer. You know, Arsenal were there first, weren't they? And and as Edwin van der Sar told us in the interview that we did in um, Amsterdam, they just weren't at the level that Manchester United were at when it came to the, the financing of that deal. But I thought Martinez equipped himself really well. There was, a, you know, obviously he scored the header, which was a brave header, you know, putting his head there. You know, the, the gashed head still from that Mateta elbow, you know, he's, he's still wearing a head guard, you know, days after the event. Um, and he, that's what I'm saying, you know, uh, if that's the... Uh, <laughs> Ian's waving and imagining red card right now, listeners. By the way, so I'm, I'm agreeing with him. Um, uh, and but he also defensively, I think he he kind of you know th- there was that moment where he he barged Erdegaard off the ball with his shoulder, whereas you know perhaps another defender might have slid in and it would have been a bit more chaotic. And then he brought the ball away and it led to a McTominay shot that Ramsdale saved well. So I just thought credit to him because at the end of the game as well, uh, he I mean I posted it to my Instagram, but there was a moment quite oddly where a fan runs on from the Arsenal end all the way over and I was sort of wondering what he was up to and he kind of goes straight to Martinez, hugs him, like doesn't let go. It's kind of a bit weird um, and you've got like stewards and security trying to kind of wrestle this this guy off him but Martinez is really calm, takes his shirt off, kind of gives it to the guy and kind of just sort of eases himself away uh, and then goes across and kind of applauds the fans. So I don't know, I just thought it was another occasion. I know United considered three goals and, and maybe you could look back and, and, and pinpoint moments where Martinez might have been better positioned but I just think overall he, he had a really good display. Yeah, he did. Uh, and Eric Ten Hag had a new coat, which I was admiring because um, <laughs> he had another roll neck underneath. Mm. He's got quite a collection of roll necks. And I know 
Andy, you're a fan of a roll neck, aren't you? <laughs> I wondered where that was going. <laughs> I, I got given one as a present a few weeks ago, and I wore it for two days. And in that time, I did quite a few bits of that roll neck stuff was everywhere, it, wasn't on it? camera. And you picked me. Yeah, that roll neck was everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I said to my wife, is this all right? Look, look, you're lucky you're now laughing at me, squirming, right? She went, yeah, it looks nice. But I did some um, Grenada Reports Northwest tonight and I looked really bad on telly and I got loads of, loads of grief from like my mum's mates saying, your Andrew looks tired. <laughs> well, I'm like, that's because I was tired. I was exhausted. I'd done a load of matches. I'd been working really hard. And then went to the part of Manchester where I'm from the day after... Saw you on the telly last night. In your roll neck. a bit rough. He seems to be deflected from this yeah, roll neck. it wasn't the roll neck yeah. was getting the attention. Well, all we're saying, Andy, yeah. is that until Tanag showed up, we'd not seen should, him in a roll should neck. Should a man wear a roll neck? I'd not seen him in a roll neck until Tanag right. started winning. He wouldn't have wore a roll neck at Brentford, <laughs> would he? <laughs> I would not have bought a roll neck jumper, uh, but I was, I was given one as a gift, and it's very nice, and I wore it, and I will wear it again, but not on a day when I do the podcast reviews. <laughs> Not everyone can pull off a cream roll neck, as we've discovered. Um, of course, if you want to read more about Manchester United's defeat at the Emirates Stadium, Laurie's piece is up there on The Athletic at the moment. If you want to be a subscriber, there's a podcast offer on right now, £1.99 a month for a year when you sign up at theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. Hello, I'm Adam Hurry, host of a unique football podcast, one of the top 20 football podcasts in Guatemala, a cult football podcast. No, actually, it's one of the most important football podcasts. Football Clichés, a product of nearly 20 years of obsessive research, is a podcast about the mundane and magical depths of the language of football, the curious and sometimes almost subliminal things that define the way we consume the modern game. At what age is a player eligible to roll back the years? When does a club's highly rated conveyor belt of talent turn into a fabled production line? How many types of goal-scoring header are there in the footballing vocabulary? Football Clichés doesn't just leave no stone unturned, it looks at every single stone and wonders what's the threshold for a stone to become a rock? but for football, obviously. Listen for your sins on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Okay, let's get into um, transfer stuff because there's been a few bits and bobs flying around, Andy, hasn't there? Are United done, in your opinion, for this month or... Do you think there is sort of maybe a few things simmering, possibly? I don't think there'll be any outlay um, for several reasons. I think Manchester United have really got to watch where they are in terms of the the financial fair play. 
I saw Laurie tweeting about that. I think it's a really pertinent point now. Manchester United paying huge numbers out, have sold players pretty poorly, not recruited anything like the numbers that rivals have. So I would be stunned if Manchester United signed a new player in this transfer window. It's only got what a week left to run. I think he might be scraps. You know, Shola Shoratire going to Bolton, that's good for him. He doesn't have to move. He should be playing regular football there. Bolton have got a very good manager. They're getting good crowds. So it will be loans, I, I, I suspect. But Bout Vegost is the only one who's come in and that was on a loan. And that's pretty much what we were told from the start. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are still some details in David Ornstein's column uh, this week, Laurie, about Manchester United. Tom Keane, who I think we've mentioned in passing on the podcast, um, hasn't been involved this month. And that's actually a, a little bit of a surprise, isn't it, considering the role that he played in the summer. Just explain who he is, what he was doing and why he's not doing it anymore, if you can, please. So Tom Keane was brought in on an 11-week secondment as a replacement for Matt Judge, who was the head of negotiations, obviously very closely aligned to Ed Woodward, worked from London. Um, he left uh, after the reshuffling uh, where Ed Woodward had left. So uh, Tom Keane was brought in, and his background is he, he's a lawyer for Brandsmith, so he, he works on sporting contracts, and he also he weighs the brother to Michael Keane and uh, Will Keane. You know, so Michael Keane, the Everton defender, uh, and Will Keane, the striker, both who had been at Manchester United as academy kids. So I think Tom was involved in their careers at a younger age when they were, you know, under Sir Alex Ferguson, basically, um, in the academy. Um, and he was brought in to work on transfers for Manchester United to have the negotiation. So uh, one detail that we had from the uh, summer read was that he flew with John Murta to Madrid to negotiate on Casemiro, for example. I think he was also involved in the Anthony personal terms being agreed. So, uh, you know, a, a useful person to have around by by all accounts. And also the fact that he was at Carrington alongside John Murta, alongside Andy O'Boyle, who's the deputy uh, technical director, uh, Stephen Brown, who's the head of recruitment, I think was a, a positive thing that you had people uh, in the northwest, you know, in Manchester, being able to sense the mood of, of players and, and kind of just keep on top of things rather than down in Mayfair. So the intention was, I think, to appoint him permanently. Um, and then I'd written in the uh, piece on United's recruitment uh, more recently that the agents that have been calling him to ask about January transfers haven't been kind of... He, he's not been responding. It's been passing them on to uh, Andy O'Boyle, John Murta, Stephen Brown. So, um, so yeah, it's an interesting one. And then David Ornstein has, has managed to um, get the story that he's actually gone back to work at Brandsmith. So he's not going to be joining Manchester United, um, at least not in, you know, in the immediate term, it seems like. Um, but it is a position that United are looking to fill because, I mean, it's a lot of work to do negotiations as well as you know all the extra bits that you do as a football director for example so I, I think it sounds like it's a, a role that is required at Manchester United I know it, it's kind of been maligned in, in, in past years where you've been looking at Matt Judge and you know all, the, all he does is contract negotiations but I, I do think it's a, a significant job to have um, so yeah it's an interesting story and, and I mean sort of associated to that is the fact that United do need to sort of box cleverer in uh, sales and signings because as Andy's touched on there FFP I think is going to be a looming issue for the club um, Matt Slater is currently working on a piece that I think will be out on the Athletic this week you know if not sooner um, so you know keep your eyes peeled for that one where it goes into a bit of detail on 
the issues that United are facing with it. And people might sort of say, well, look at Chelsea spending loads of money at the moment. You know, why can't we do that? You know, we've got bigger revenues than Chelsea. But I think Chelsea, you know, we'll see how that shakes down. But obviously they're they're offering these contracts, these long-term contracts to players um, so they can amortise the, the cost of them in the accounts over several years. So there's, there's ways of kind of, yeah, getting round or, or kind of make, making sure that you're on, on the right side of these FFP rules. But it, so, yeah, read, read the Matt Slater piece when it comes out for the fine detail. But the broad picture is that it means that even I think in summer, United are going to have to sell, you know, to buy significantly. I mean, it, there might be ways of, of, of getting a bit more cash in, in the bank. And obviously, Champions League qualification will be hugely beneficial. But I think it's a real issue at Manchester United right now governing how much they're able to spend on players in the summer. Yeah, one of the players who's been speculated about, Laurie, you've written about it actually in David's column, uh, contributed to that. People can go and read that, of course, uh, because that's out now. It drops every Monday morning, usually, David Onstein's column. It's usually got something juicy in it. (laughs) But Scott McTominay, Andy, is is a name that is being linked with a move away from United. Newcastle are the team who seem to be most interested in Scott. Laurie's written that it won't happen in January, but are we looking at the end game for McTominay at Old Trafford? I think there's two factors here. Manchester United need money in, serious money in. And if a club like Newcastle were prepared to pay a lot of money for Scott McTominay, and Scott McTominay is not playing football, which is the second factor, and he gets offered first-team football, and if a club's going to pay a lot of money for you, then you would sense that they're going to play you in the first team, then that would become uh, more probable. Uh, Eric Ten Hag likes him. I think he sees him as an important part of the squad. But that start at Arsenal was his first since October. So I think if if Manchester United had a big bid in for a Harry Maguire or a Scott McTominay, then it would be something that Manchester United looked at really seriously. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I was surprised that Scott McTominay hadn't started since the Manchester Derby defeat at the Etihad Stadium. I mean, that feels like a hell of a long time ago. He's played in the, the Cup since, Laurie, but it's not a great sign for him is it and you know the manager might say that he likes him and he's important but if he's not playing he'll want to play I, I suppose for sure I mean I think you know Ten Hag doesn't like to rotate his team does he so once he's and he's been in a winning you know mode so I guess that's why Scott has, has not had the opportunities that he perhaps would have liked I mean but then again you know as soon as Casemiro's out McTominay comes in rather than Fred and I know perhaps that's because he'd, he'd done well in the home game Old Trafford started that 3-1 win but you do, you know, he's 26 now, I think. So he's getting to that point in his career where you do want to be playing regularly. You don't really want to be a bit part player. And if Newcastle are able to offer a good contract and, and you know, I don't know, what what price would you put on Scott McTominay? But say say it's 30 million, you know, that, that money could be reinvested to, you know, areas of the squad that Ten Hag wants. So it's, it's something that I think will be interesting. And, and it's something that I think United are focused on with, with this FFP thing in the background. Just generally, though, being better at knowing when to sell players. I think I think the James Garner sale early in the season, you know, on reflection, looks better in hindsight um, than it did at the time. Um, but they haven't. You know, Dan James is another one where they sold a, probably a good moment. So there's been you know, crumbs, but it's not been a consistent theme like you see at Liverpool, like you see at Man City. I mean, look at Man City. I mean, maybe they'll regret it because they, they they're going to potentially lose the title to Arsenal. But they've sold Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus for for a lot of money, and that takes not a great example, though, is it? Possibly not a great example. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but I do, but I do think there's a value. Well, clearly there's a value in selling at the right time. But then it, it should be a. It also keeps 
keeps squads competitive and keep, keeps players on their toes, you know, so I think there's that element to it. I mean, you, you touch on Maguire, I think it will be really interesting what happens to him in the summer. Um, he, he won't be satisfied at being uh, on the bench every week. Jaden Sancho kind of goes into the, the two themes that we spoke about here. Is he a player that Ten Hag can actually bring the best out of and bring fulfilment from? £73 million purchase who has, you know, it seemed an incredibly high ceiling. Can can this, you know, period now reinvigorate his career at Manchester United and he gets the best out of him so that we see the kind of rejuvenation that we've seen at Arsenal in, in other players? Or is it a case of, okay, actually, we need to, you know, cut our losses on this, sell him for a good price, as, as good as we can get, and then get it, you know, sign a player that actually fits Ten Hag's methods uh, more accurately so um, yeah but it's, it's definitely an interesting area to keep on top of and, and just to touch on one more item that's in David Ornstein's column which is the Harry Kane um, item which which clearly has United links um, with stories about you know him being on their list and I think we've touched on before he's, he's been on you know United's list for, for a long long time for, for several years um, but it felt like maybe this one would be uh, an opportunity to, to go for him if, if he's you know uh, on one year left and Daniel Levy's open to selling him but David Ornstein's information is that he's, he's open to signing a new contract at Spurs. So that's a, another um, kind of aspect to consider in all this. Yeah, United might have to sell quite a few players before they can afford <laughs> Harry Kane, to be fair. Yeah. Those numbers are to make sense. goes without saying, keep your eye on The Athletic for any updates in this January transfer window and beyond. Um, in terms of new arrivals at Old Trafford, though, the women's team are the ones who are keeping up appearances for United. Two new players confirmed over the weekend. Jade Riviera, Canadian defender, who's said to be a huge Manchester United fan, so it's a dream come true for her to wear red. And Estelle Cascarino as well, who's joined on loan from PSG. A great weekend for the women's team, Andy. A win against Reading sent them top of the WSL on goal difference for the time being. I think Arsenal have got a game in hand, but there was some sort of controversial postponements in the WSL and United were able to take advantage of that. They're flying, aren't they? Well, the, the top of the league, for the first time I'm paying proper attention to the Women's Super League. When Manchester City only managed to draw on Saturday, I'm going, ah, this is interesting because it's really tight at the top. You've got four teams there, City, Arsenal, Chelsea, who are the established order. They're the ones who United are trying to break into and United have done. So I remember at the start of the season, uh, going to one of the women's games, speaking to people there and a a finish which would get Manchester United into the Champions League was seen as being what the, the team were aiming for. The league table looks really healthy at the moment. Played 11, won nine, drawn one, lost one, only conceded six goals. So it's looking really good. And if those teams who are around United can drop points as Manchester City did at the weekend, then then great. I watched the, the win against Liverpool a few weeks ago when they hammered Liverpool. Watched the Manchester derby when Manchester United played really well. There's going to be another game at Old Trafford, which is a good thing. And I just sense a really strong vibe around a team who, who only started playing in, in 2018. It's still quite new. When you said you were taking a proper interest in the women's team for the first time, I thought you were going to cite the fact that the goal difference was seeing them top of the WSL table. And it's a plus 25 goal difference. So that, Andy, that would really get your juices flowing, wouldn't it? I can't believe that you're having me down for someone who like pays loads of attention to goal difference just because I've mentioned it a couple of times on podcasts. But yeah, if you want me to talk about the goal difference of the women's team, it is plus 25. It's better than Chelsea, who, who are plus 23, and Arsenal's, who are plus 20, and Manchester City, 
who are only plus 12. So well done to Manchester United women's team on having such an impressive goal difference. How's that for you? Thank you, Andy. Um, You mentioned there as well, Laurie, about the game at Old Trafford, 25th of March, which is the middle of the next international break for the men's team, a 12.30 kickoff playing against West Ham. Another brilliant occasion to look forward to and fingers crossed they can break through the record for the attendance as well because they've they've really made huge strides with this over the course of the last 12 months. I think the fact that United are consistently now putting them on at Old Trafford is a, is a good thing. You've seen the enthusiasm that the fans have got for those kind of occasions. And I think also like you've got characters, haven't you, in the, in the, in the women's team. You've got players that people recognise and, and want to get behind. I mean, Alicia Russo seems to score every week, you know, and I think it's an interesting aspect to her contract situation at the moment, I think. Um, but you, so you've got these yeah, kind of... need to get that sorted. Yeah. So that's, that's, it's, it's kind of, but you're getting these kind of narratives that are, are, are pretty compelling for people to, to, to be, uh, you know, kind of engaged with. Um, but yeah, I think it's incredible what they're doing at the moment because you just wouldn't have had them down as title contenders this season at all, would you? I mean, it, it, it was, it was, it's not long ago that the women's side seemed to be in a bit of turmoil with, you know, Casey Stoney leaving in the direction of of, of the of the of the side. Um, they are, you know, doing work at Carrington to improve the facilities there. That's certainly been an issue in the past, um, and perhaps overdue. To be fair, um, but yeah, on the pitch, credit to them. I mean, yeah, goals. I'm going to go for goals four here, Andy. Thirty four, sorry, thirty one goals scored and, and six goals against. So getting giving you that twenty five. I mean, that that is a great ratio. And the club are putting more money into it. They appointed Polly Bancroft in October. As a head of, of women's football, she came with a good track record. There's, there's a proper budget there. Uh, I, I get the show games at Old Trafford. I think the crowds could actually be bigger for them. And I know they're celebrated, whatever they are, but I think they could be bigger. But more important, I think, is growing your core fan base. And it dipped a little bit last season. So if you can go through five, six, seven thousand average home crowd, that is really, really big. For, for, a, for a new team and there's a good fan culture there there's a little Barmy Army who sing all the songs and I think if there weren't so many first team men's home games the crowds would be even bigger but there are so many at the moment and some of the fans I've got to mention these they travelled on the monkey bus to Arsenal do you know what time they got home? 5.30 on Monday morning so they've come out the ground and they're fuming and the coach is it a fire hydrant and damaged the wheel. So they had to wait for a repair. And there probably not aren't a million specialists even in London who can dam- who can repair coach wheels. So they left the Emirates at one o'clock in the morning. Ouch. I really felt sorry for the Manchester United fans on that bus. Exactly. And I knew one of them. And just before I went to bed last night, I said <laughs> I'm thinking about you, mate. I just felt so desperate for him, knowing that he hadn't moved from the ground four hours after a defeat. You did well to not make some sort of joke about the wheels coming off um, of some description, <laughs> and I won't do it either. So, so let's move it on. So we've just got the small matter of a cup semi-final to talk about now on Talk the Devils. This is nice, isn't it? And it's not Manchester City in the League Cup either, is it, Laurie? It's Nottingham Forest and we've got reason to be optimistic, haven't we? You'd think so, right? I mean, I'm going to get ahead of myself again. 
I said that United had basically sorted Champions League qualification, didn't I, a couple of weeks ago. They've won, a, they've won silverware as well now, have they? No, I'm going to say, yeah. Well, I'm going to say they're at Wembley. I wasn't going to say the full thing because okay. I do think Newcastle, you know, if it's Newcastle, would be uh, a challenging opponent. have shown themselves to be tough opponents in this League Cup True. this season, so, you know, you never know. Yes, you've got to take each game as it comes and, and there's no easy games in the Carabao Cup. Semi-finals. Yeah, that being said, um, I do, yeah, I mean, it, it's a great opportunity and I suppose actually it's a good set of fixtures you'd think for United just to avoid this becoming any kind of tailspin where, you know, a late goal conceded yes. against Palace and then a late goal conceded against Arsenal to draw and lose and, you know, you'd hope that they could get past Reading and get past Nottingham Forest and then, you know, they're at Wembley by the time they're back in the Premier League. You know, it's these three games next before they even play um, in the Premier League again. So, um, yeah, it's a, it feels like a good way to respond. And, I mean, Tenag has, has been very clear about wanting to win a trophy in his first season. He's not, you know, tried to claim it's a three, four-year project, which I know, it, you know, he's reflected on at other times when it comes to winning the title. But I think he, he does see the importance of, of picking up silverware as you go. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure he'll pick a full-strength team and... and, and absolutely be determined to get past Forest. Yeah, definitely. We've read in next at the weekend, Andy. It feels like it will be a strong team. And like Laurie said there, actually, you're looking at the fixture list again with optimism that they can put another run together. Forest, obviously, next. Then Reading, like we said. The next leg against Forest. Then Crystal Palace. Leeds, which has been inserted at the moment. Now, people will probably know this, but that is dependent on United or Leeds not getting an FA Cup replay in the fourth round. Of course, keep an eye on that this weekend. If there was a replay for either of the teams, that Premier League match would be postponed again against Leeds. But then it's Leeds effectively back-to-back. They play them away at Ellen Road before Barcelona. That's a good warm-up for the Europa League, isn't it? You would hope that Manchester United win all of those games, that the Forest game is over two legs as well. I can't wait to go to Forest on Wednesday. I've not been to Nottingham since February 99, when Manchester United scored eight. Wow. I know. Because I've been to almost every British city on a on a semi-regular basis. And I used to go to Nottingham every year in the 90s. Even saw Manchester United play Notts County in, in 1991. That was a massive away following, 14,000 there that day. And I've not been to Nottingham since then, so I can't wait. It's a semi-final. I was delighted when Southampton beat Manchester City because I feared another League Cup semi-final against Manchester City. I was delighted when United were drawn against Forest. Forest have improved the 13th in the table now. When we last spoke about Forest before the game at Old Trafford, they're in the relegation zone. So they've become a difficult team to beat. And it's a huge game for Nottingham Forest as well. So I know that the fans will go in there. Third away game in the space of a week. But then you've got that run of matches. United have done really well against uh, Leeds United. Really convincing in the last couple of years, even in pretty dark moments. Palace at home will probably be the most difficult one should really be beating Reading in the Cup. And then there's a small matter of Barcelona. I'm sure we'll talk Barcelona more closer to the time. I've been watching them play a lot. They're getting better. They really are. But we'll talk about Barcelona closer to the time. Yeah, let's talk about your exclusive that drops on The Athletic earlier on, on Monday, Andy. And that's changes to the Stretford End executive section. It's not coming for a couple of years. 
but this is something that people have sort of felt strongly about since it was changed, to be honest. It's a pretty simple story. In, in 1993, when Manchester United opened the new Stratford end, right in the middle of it was a block of 850 seats, which were given over to an executive section. And that really annoyed a lot of fans at the time because the Stratford end is traditionally the vocal heartland. It was where all the fans stood. It was the cheapest part of the ground to stand in. There were a lot of young fans in there. And suddenly, right in the middle of it, you've got this executive area. Now, a lot of the fans who go in that executive area are United fans who've done well for themselves and they want a bit of what executive facilities can offer. So I get that, but I still think it is good of Manchester United to listen to the fans. They're going to get rid of that executive area. They're going to replace it with general admission seats. Hopefully we'll see the Red Army, which has been a success, spreading towards the middle of the Stretford End. Hopefully we'll see rail seating and push it towards something like we see in Dortmund, where you've got one end, this massive end, which is is like the 12th man for, for your team. And going back five years, the Stretford end wasn't that. You had a big family stand section, and then you had that executive bit next to it. And United got it wrong in 93. And I put it to Martin Edwards, the chairman at the time, and in 2017, he finally admitted to me, yeah, we, we probably did get it wrong because the atmosphere suffered so much. Old Trafford, a little bit of it died in the, in the 1990s and it was glossed over because the team were winning all the time. The team was brilliant, but it, it was a travesty what happened. Ticket prices shot up. Loads of people who'd supported United through pretty lean times couldn't get to matches. I used to get the bus from Ermston, it was full. By 1994, that bus was empty. So local kids couldn't get to see the, the local team. It was really sad. So I think the club have got to be credited. And the people who've worked on this, people like Rick, the fan engagement officer, Must, the Red Army, they've all um, lobbied Manchester United for this. And I'm, I'm a bit surprised because that's going to cost the club money because to sit in them executive seats costs three grand a season. It's a long way from the £1.20 I used to pay to stand on that terrace. Whichever way you look at it, Laurie, this is great news, isn't it? I mean, we all want an atmosphere that's as good as it possibly can be at Old Trafford. And like Andy said, there has been huge strides made, but this is another one of the, the details that can actually enable the ground to be as noisy as it once was. I think it's a beautiful narrative that Andy tells there. You know, uh, it, you know, it's educative for me to hear that kind of thing because I remember when I was first going, we actually had tickets in the family stand, which is just off to the uh, off to the right of the tunnel. And you can see the Stratford end, and I, I just sort of thought, yeah, like I mean, it, it felt incongruous that you'd have those kind of leather seats there in the middle of it. But I kind of just thought, oh, well, that's the way it is. You know, I, I didn't really know any different. So it's it's kind of. And you see the videos, but when hearing it first time from Andy there, you kind of get a real sense of what it used to be like. And then, as you say, it, I suppose it, it kind of became a forgotten thing because United were winning all the time. But actually, to to have these guys, you know, press the point repeatedly, and you've, you've, you mentioned the names there, Andy, and I think that's right. Um, and, and credit to the club for listening to them and actually responding. And, and you know, it's going to cost them money. So I think that but for the betterment of Old Trafford, that's that's great and fan experience. That should be what football's about. So um yeah, it's kind of like a pretty warming story, I think. Um and hopefully it's you know, I, I know that everybody wants uh, a stadium that's better than it is right now. And it has been uh undervalued, uh, it hasn't been 
renovated as, as, as much as it should have been. Um, and, and this is maybe a small step towards that. But I do think that Old Trafford has such history and such, you know, tradition and, and kind of memories that we should try and keep it intact as, as much as possible. Um, and I suppose this is, you know, a, a different aspect to that, but one that hopefully enables an atmosphere to, to grow to its fullest. Yeah, and you are hearing, Andy, as well, elements within the club that they are beginning to acknowledge the importance of things like the noise levels of the Stretford end. I mean, it, it would go back to it. We've talked about it a few times on the podcast, but Eric Ten Hag switching the dugouts around because he wanted to be closer to the Stretford end. He wanted to be closer to the fans that were making the most noise and creating the atmosphere as opposed to being on the other side like they'd always been before, which is actually nearer to the away fans. You know, just little signs like that are steps in the right direction that people who matter and are making decisions within the club are acknowledging that things like this are important again. It is important and it's big progress. And United was so cloth-eared in the 1990s, it still drives me mad. I remember uh, pushing people about the atmosphere at the club and they're like, well, well, they just couldn't see that it was an issue. So one solution given in 1995 was to employ a brass band at the start at the front of um, of the scoreboard end for one game. I think it was against Sunderland. And I just what on earth are you doing? Why don't you consult with people? The hardcore fans, the fans who love the club. So there's been a sea change since then. The communication is much better. You're seeing stuff like this. Ticket prices have not gone up for a decade now. That absolutely has to be welcomed because... In the 90s, they shot up. And again, when the Glazers took over in 2005, you had five years of really steep ticket price rises. And look after your hardcore fans. Look after the people who are there through thick and thin. I get that there'll be times when everyone can't be happy. I get there's been a surge in demand post-COVID to see live football, including at Manchester United. You're always going to have people who are disappointed. But if you can add to the spectacle... And the Stretford end at his best. And it's been really good at times this season. Remember singing Fred Will Tear You Apart or the goals in the Manchester Derby. It was magnificent to be in that stadium. And the players respond to that. So it's, it is slightly ironic because when it was suffering, Manchester United was so good. But a loud stadium is definitely a, a good thing. And I mean, could you imagine a block of exec seats being put in the copper Anfield? or in, in the in the wall at Dortmund, it would never have uh, had hap- should have happened. And it shouldn't have happened at Manchester United, and I'm glad that it's been rectified. The people who sit in that section, there's some proper good United fans in there, and they can stay in that section, but there were also people who were using it for corporate hospitality, who were coming to, be, to, to, to watch and not to partake. And I think there's a big difference as a football fan. Yeah, there certainly is. If you want to know more about that decision, of course, Andy's piece is up on The Athletic now. Don't forget, if you're not a subscriber and you want to subscribe, there is a special podcast price of £1.99 a month for the first year when you subscribe at theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. Uh, Laurie, we're, we're saying goodbye to you, not just for this podcast, but for a little while, actually, aren't we? You're off on your hollybobs. Hollybobs to Sri Lanka, yeah. I'll send you pictures. I'll keep you all Did updated. Did I just say the word hollybobs, by the way? I'd, and I just went with it. I accepted it. Yeah, sorry about I've, that. I've got friends that say that, so... You should yeah. both be fined for saying that. I don't know if I've ever used that term before in my life, but yeah, there we go. Well, I think the missus might have a go at me if I call it hollybobs. It's actually honeymoon. Honeymoony bobs. <laughs> yeah, Sri Lanka. Beach. I, 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 I'm actually quite disgusted in myself that it's it's freezing cold temperatures here, and I'm 
heading off to somewhere where the average temperature for last week has been sort of 29 degrees. So don't feel too sorry for me. Have a great time. You look absolutely gutted that you're going (laughs) with that massive big grin on your face. Do you know what? Like when I booked it, I was like, let's do it after the Arsenal game, before the Barcelona game. I was like, well, I'm only going to miss a couple of matches. And since that point, they've just hammered, you know, fixtures into the uh, schedule. But hopefully by the time I come back, United are at Wembley, through to the next round of the FA Cup, and we're we're ready for uh, Barcelona in the in Europa League. I look forward to welcoming you back to discuss about all the wins that you've missed, Laurie. I'm, I'm sure you'll be bothered when you sat there on your sun lounger checking Twitter to see what the scores are coming in. But thank you for being with us today. Enjoy yourself. Have a brilliant time. Andy, thank you to you as well. I look forward to seeing you soon in your next uh, roll neck off the uh, production line. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening at home as well. Andy's shaking his head. Laurie's smiling. That was Talk of the Devils. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Athletic.